You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Frank Schatzing is a best-selling author in Germany. His first book in the United States was The Swarm. His newest book is Limit. Thank you for joining me, Frank. Yes, hello. <laughs> Frank, one of the things that strikes me about your books is these are really big books. They're very involved. They're long. They have a lot of characters. You have a lot of concepts. I'd like you to just talk about the planning, the writing for a book that's going to be in the vicinity of 1,000 pages or more. Well, first of all, I can tell you the reason why I do it and why I write books that thick because I used to work in advertising as a copywriter. And as a copywriter in advertising, you have to write very short texts. And after years, there came a day I was in the mood to write a very long text. (laughs) So this is the reason that my books are so enormous. Of course, it starts, as, as any book, I think, and as any movie, it starts with a small idea you keep your eyes open, your ears open, you hear something. In this case, it was something I read in a magazine about helium-3, the stuff you get on the moon, new energy, and I thought that might be a good plot for a novel. And I started to do research and did that for two years, and the research itself will, would fill uh, two or 3,000 pages. So, and then you start to reduce And so far, it's a very short book. (laughs) One of the things I really like about your books, I think that makes them so so involving, is coming up with the characters that deal with your ideas. So tell us about, for example, creating Julian Orley. Well, Julian Orley was easy. There are, of course, a lot of characters which are totally fictional. Uh, But Julian Orley is a bit, of course, Richard Branson. I mean, it is not one-to-one, it's not really himself, but it's a character which is very close to him. And I was looking for an entrepreneur you could call the richest man in the world and maybe as well the, the man with the, the most courageous visions, so to say. And, of course, Brenton was a good one for that. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about both your books is the way you take... For example, in The Swarm, we have a, a, a fairly simple uh, science fiction idea in that alien entities arrive and decide to turn the sea against us. And that's a pretty simple uh, notion. But what you've done is you've built this big plot and superstructure, and I really like the way that you pursue, doggedly pursue, the implications of your notions of the fantastic. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about coming up with this notion of the fantastic in the swarm of this alien mind and then pursuing that to all these really fantastic uh, things that are, that are completely logical once you accept the, the, the premise. Yes. Well, concerning the swarm, I can tell you how it all began. And it's a true story. It began with a dream. It was in the middle of the 90s that I remember it was 3, three o'clock in the morning and I had fallen asleep a bit and I had a little dream. I saw myself flying over an ocean and in this ocean I saw millions of fish 
um, big fish, dangerous fish, small fish, whatever you can guess. Um, they all together were swimming towards the land, towards the shore, and it was obvious to me the same moment that they planned something wicked. And as sometimes you know in a dream exactly what happens, I knew that they planned to get rid of mankind. And with this idea, I woke up and thought, hey, this is good stuff for a thriller. But it's I, didn't, I hadn't got any idea why Life in the Seas should do that and how it should do it. And I didn't want something esoteric. I wanted something scientific. And so I, I, I was looking, I searched for ways how to tell this story as a real science fiction thriller. And I talked to lots of scientists. And I myself, I'm a diver. And I traveled to Canada, and I did whale watching, and I went down, and I went to, to Norway, and so on, and so on. So by this, by doing this, first, you learn a lot about the subject you want to write about. And the second is that you meet lots of interesting people. And the fact is that the most interesting people are not coming from your brain, from the fiction, they're coming from real life. And so you start to build in all these different characters, and the plot is growing and growing and growing, and the more it grows, the more it is necessary to put sort of a structure in it, as a movie director does it with a storyboard, um, with a screenplay. And so this is always what I do before. To get a structure in it, I write something like, well, an, arch an architect would make a painting. And this is what I do with the novel. And so all these different aspects grew into each other and built that complex structure. And, well, the rest is just writing. It, it sounds like your architect's uh, painting must be about as long as most people's novels, given the length of your novels. Is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, it's, it's like building a skyscraper. Um, um, some something in Abu Dhabi or <laughs> hundreds of meters high. So what you need, you need pillars which are able to carry the story. You need a roof, uh, a, a logical roof, so to say. You need a fundament of facts. And for my kind of writing, it's important to do that before I start to write. And for instance, there is that, that part in the swarm where I, which takes place in Canada and the other one takes place in Norway. And if you look at, well, how do you call it if you start to write just the content in a few pages? The script, as in a, in a movie, it's the, it's the script. You see, there is on one day you write, this and this is happening. And then you write, at the same time, this isn't happening in, in Canada. So, and Canada was uh, red, written in red and Norway was written in blue, and so on. So I could, on first view, I could see how the story grips into each other. Too much blue would have meant too much of the story, story takes place in Canada. And the same with too much red. You know, it's, it starts that simple, and it gives you an overlook, overlook about the whole story. And then you start to fill this with, with content, with characters, and with little ideas, and so you get sort of a plan like an architect does for a skyscraper. And then the people move in. Still, you're not writing. The people move in, and 
I first, before I create a character, I think about his function. I, I start to think about which functions I know, I, I, I need, I need for the story. And if I know that I need uh, several astronauts or several biologists uh, or geologists or whatever, then I, I start to create the characters. And this is the same I did with, with Limit. I mean, Limit is even larger, bigger than the Swarm. And I think Limit's got about 100, 100 characters, different characters. So preparation takes me much longer than writing itself. You know, one of the things that struck me about both these novels is that they really exemplify the one of the basic natures of science fiction in, when you write a science fiction novel that's set in the future or even in the present, when something happens in the present, there's a political aspect uh, of that is, I think, comes part and parcel with the vision of the science fiction uh, writer. When you're writing about the future or writing about the way things, uh, the future happens in the present when change happens, it's inherently political. So I'd like you to talk about the inherent politics of your of your work and how that fits in with the politics in Germany and since you're now an international bestseller, the publisher, you know, the, the politics of the world, this is a, must be a challenge for you. It is, of course. And it was a challenge in, uh, in Limit much more than in The Swarm because um, in Limit, I was thinking about a new technology first. One technology is the space elevator and the other te technology is the environmentally fr environmental friendly energy you get from the moon. And if you start writing about a space elevator, for instance, then you think it is enough to know everything about such an elevator, and the rest of the world stays as it is. But the truth is that if you write about the future, you have to face that the whole world has changed. Because nowadays, if something is happening on one point of the globe, it will influence life on the other side of the globe. So it was the challenge for me was indeed to create a whole globe, a whole planet Earth, a whole life on planet Earth in 2025, which is great fun to do, really great fun to do. And of course, you take, you, you think about how politics worldwide is working today, what is happening in politics, and how this will develop. Because if you, if you write a book which takes place in 2025, which is not so far away, then, of course, you can't write any fantasy stuff. You have to, 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 to combine it with, with what is happening today. And I like science fiction, which goes only one or maybe two steps further on. Not too much you still can think that, that this might happen in your lifetime or it might happen in your children's lifetime. This makes it for me really interesting. But this means that you have first, you have to, to learn everything about politics on planet Earth at the moment, today. And then from this, you have to, to develop your visions. You know, it struck me too, especially with Limit, that one of the things I like about your work is that it's science fiction. It moves us into the future, but you understand that the future is really not so different from the present because, you know, you look at the, uh, 
Philip K. Dick's novels written in the 1970s had us on Mars in the 1990s, and that's, you know, yeah. fantasy stuff. Your, your work is, seems much more grounded. Yeah, it is, it is. In The Swarm, for instance, I mean, nearly everything in The Swarm is fact. The only thing which is not fact is the creature. And I could have thought about um, the typical uh, sea monster, as you find it in the movies from the 50s or the 60s, 70s. But I, I wanted something which really could have developed. And so I got the idea of the swarm intelligence by creating intelligent one-cellars. And I had a um, professor for genetics, which is a friend of mine, and I told him the idea and asked him if this was maybe possible. And he said, well, if we think about extraterrestrial life, this would maybe a way on another planet, maybe a water planet, which could have developed over millions of years. And we went to a colonial brewery and drank lots of beer because such thing needs, well, water. Lubrication. You know? Yes. <laughs> and we created this uh, creature. And scienti scientists said that they really can imagine that uh, a life species like that could have developed also in our oceans. And this is what I really like, to write about what is real, and add a little, a little um, science fiction, but in a way that you can say, well, maybe it's, it, it exists. You know. In Limit, one of the things that really interested me was the, uh, the plot line with the uh, cyber detective. And I thought one of, that you, one of the things you do really well, when you're writing a book of this length, you take advantage of that format, and you really set up the character with this whole very intricate initial sting he does. So I'd like you to talk about uh, how much of the character work that you do lives outside the book. I mean, you do you have biographies of these characters outside of the book, or do you just say, heck, I'm writing a long book, I'm putting everything in. Both. Most of the characters have biographies before, because I like to know everything about the person I write about, which doesn't mean that everything gets into the book. But 90% of the characters, I write a biography of two, three, sometimes four or five pages. So I know their childhood, I know how they grew up, how first they fell in love, <laughs> all these things, important things which over years form a character. Then it can happen to you that within the story, while you write, you all of a sudden need someone. You need someone just for a scene, maybe, just for, for some lines. And um, you create someone very quickly, and then you realize, oh, this is a good character. You should keep him. And it can happen that this becomes one of the most interesting characters of the whole book. Um, and this is the other way around, that... Um, there is no biography, but the character develops by writing. Both is nice, but for the main characters, to me, it is better to create the biography before. You know, yeah, one of the things that, that was uh, really interesting in this book was the way you have the... Um, we see a couple of different plot strands here uh, from the outset, and, and they the way you bring them together. I'd like you to talk about orchestrating a, a big piece like this. This is It is really like orchestrating a huge symphony, something bigger, really, than a symphony, I would say. Of course. Of course.
course. Oh, it's more an opera, like Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a bit like that. It starts in limits, for instance. It, it, it takes place in different, how do you say, time zones. We say time zones. So there's the Eastern Hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, there is the Moon. The, a lot of the stuff takes place at the same time. But of course, you have to know that in China, it is early in the morning, and in Canada, it is after the afternoon. And then you have to realize, well, and on the moon, and so on. So this is the first thing that you have to orchestrate time, time and space, simply. And then, of course, yes, uh, you have to orchestrate about 8,200 characters, and they're all talking, um, and they all have their own lives, and bring them together. And third thing is all the little, little details you learn about the future. So, so there are flying cars in it, how the food will change, how clothing will change, and all this stuff. So to give you a, an impression how it is to go through such a future city and what you see. And uh, you talk to scientists and a lot of people, and you learn so much that you have to delete most of it. You have to throw it out, because... Uh, otherwise, you have too many musicians in your orchestration, and that you, then you get a cacophony. So the most important thing, of course, is throwing things out, and then I'm always astounded that in the end, everything fits together. I really have to say, I remember when I wrote, uh, um, wrote down the, the last pages of Limit, and I, all of a sudden I realized it fits. It fits. That was fantastic. You know, it, it sounds like it must be a really uh, crowning moment for you. You, you know, I, I also wanted to talk to you, too, about one of the things that makes these books exciting are the exciting parts. And you, you bring us to a lot of great action scenes and they're very well blocked out. Do you uh, map those out in terms of geography when you're like setting up a, a scene like on the moon or, or in a big city or, you know, in China uh, the UK, Germany, where, wherever you're setting these scenes, do you kind of block them out before you uh, write them down? Mm. Well, first I have to say um, I love James Bond. Um, what I love about James Bond most is that within one movie, you travel all around the globe. So this is what I did in Limit as well. It means that before I have to know the place where a scene takes place very well. So some of the places I've been before, then I stay there for a week or two, and I make photographs, and I film, and I talk to people, and I go to restaurants and bars and try to get a feeling how it is there. There are, of course, places I can't travel to, like the moon. And um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, well, not, not yet. yet. <laughs> uh, so I really, I really learned everything about the moon, and I bought me um, a telescope. So from my terrace, I could see the moon, and I could see each valley and each mountain and to get an impression how it is up there. And for that was in summer, and each night I stared up to the moon uh, where the story should take place. And you get all these fantastic uh, films by, by uh, and pictures by, by this... Um, uh, there's a satellite um, um, circulating around the moon, which goes very, very deep, so you get very sharp pictures. 
And there are some, some real good scientists in Germany who are specialists for the moon. So I talked to them. Then I went to an architect from the Netherlands who started to think about building a moon hotel 20 years ago and talked to him. And this means whenever I, I start to write an action scene, wherever it might take place, on the moon or in Shanghai or in Africa, I know the place very well. So I don't have to think about how it looks there. I just can send my figures through. Now, it, it strikes me that this is certainly the kind of book, especially Limit, that would make a hell of a good movie. So I'm wondering if you could tell me, uh, has there been any interest in that? Or it's, it be, I mean, I, I, given the length, I think we'd want to see a miniseries out of this. Has that been done for any of your work? Or? Well, first of all, I think it's a hell of an expensive movie. <laughs> and this is the problem. <laughs> so, I mean, at the moment we are working on The Swarm. And now it looks quite good. We started to think about making a film um, seven years ago, and that was a time when when Hollywood didn't have any money before uh, they, they they were bankrupt, you know, and so we didn't make it. Now, the money starts to come from other parts of the world. The Chinese are investing a lot in movies and blockbusters. Uh, the Arabs do, as well. We are thinking about limits. We started to think indeed about a mini series. I think that would be a very good idea. Well, we, we will see. Uh, I, I'm not interested in selling the license to someone who wants to make, uh, would take some, some, some million dollars and, and, and make something funny which doesn't look very good, you know, just to make a movie. I really want a blockbuster which people... Have you seen Gravity with, with George Clooney and Sandra Bullock? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. This, for instance, this movie, it wouldn't have worked with worse tricks it is just uh, the, the way how they did it you can you can only make such thing 100 percent or you leave it and this is the problem with limit of course we it, it will cost us about 150 million of dollars minimum now. but i hope that we will um we will make a movie maybe in 2025 <laughs> <laughs> uh, I- Limit came out in Germany in 2009. That means, presumably, you're five years into your next book? The next, every five, four to five years, there's a, next, a new book coming. And uh, the next book is coming up next March. Um, I've been writing on that for the last two years. And it, is, it will be something totally different again. So I like to change the subject. And um, the new one will be a thriller, which takes place in the present. And it's, it's playing in the Near East, Palestine, Israel. And it's a political thriller. Well, that sounds like fun. I've been speaking with Frank Schatzing. His novels are The Swarm. His newest novel is Limit. Thank you for joining me, Frank. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And um, if, if I may say one word more, Mm-hmm. Because you were asking me about um, how um, likely the future has to be in a book. I have written one novel which takes place in the 13th century in Europe. And I tell you, this is science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Frank. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.